Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Welcome to another episode of Small Doses. Y'all, we are in for a treat. Also a repeat. Okay. It's very rare that folks be coming back to the show. You feel me? But you know, this this person right here, he just occupies multiple spaces of greatness, of thoughtfulness, of intellectualism. And so here he is again as we continue on with our educator series. Uh, you know, I will say that the last time he was here, we introduced him as Mr. David Johns. However, now that he's back, <laughs> baby, it is Doc. John David Johns, welcome Boom, to, the, to the show. I should pay into the diploma. I don't know if you can see it in this <laughs> shot because it's tight, <laughs> but it's there and framed. <laughs> and framed. Thanks, and framed. framed. Yeah. Welcome to the show, Doctor Johns. Thank you for having me back. Thank you. So, you know, I feel like I needed to have you here for this educator series. One because your passion for educating and also for educators, but also for children being educated is like immense. I mean, I heard teach the babies first from you. Um, and just your mindfulness around all that that encompasses is I think what makes you such a unique being in that space. Because I think on the surface, a lot of people just take it as like reading, writing, arithmetic, you know, and like get the, get the kids to learn how to do those things. And that's that. But as we have absolutely learned over the course of this educator series and, and some of us may have already known this you know there's a holistic vision that needs to be taken to really um teaching the babies and it's not simply just about subjects but it's also about emotional intelligence and social capabilities etc and then there's also the unique space that different students hold you know that students who are queer are going to hold a different space than, you know, students who are not students who are black right. are holding are space differently and, right. and bingo. So, right. um, I want to start with you, how I started with others, which is, you know, just kind of getting an idea and understanding of like, how did you even end up in this space? Like how, where, where did your passion get lit and then driven to you becoming eventually a doctor? Yeah, I appreciate the question, friend. Uh, and three things. One, I'm really proud of you for continuing to use your powers for good. Um, you can focus you. on anything, especially in this moment. And the fact that you are focusing on education uh, speaks to how serious you are about us getting free. And the spirit of Manny Mayor, rest <laughs> in peace. Yes. Uh, the second thing is, um, it's funny to me now with, when my uh, passion is celebrated. Um, I want to <laughs> be clear that... Um, I spent um, a good time, I cut my teeth, as they would say, on Capitol Hill as a senior policy advisor uh, to the U.S. Senate on the committee, uh, it's called Health Committee, it's the Health Education Labor and Pensions Committee, it sees more than 40% of 
of legislation introduced in a given Congress. And passionate was what my white colleague said <laughs> when I, I was giving them the business. <laughs> when I when I would bust through and say, so y'all read these books because y'all went to these schools, but I know how this works in practice, in part because my sister is a recipient of this program that we're working on. I know kids in the system who are pacted by this thing that for you is simply theoretical. Um, and so passion was their way of trying to be sassy, uh, to use another word, uh, shout out to Drake. Um, so that I want to just name that. to Drake. Name that. And, right, Showing we'll his little cunty that. self. Listen, honey, we're going to come back to that as well, I'm sure, in the conversation. And specific to your question about my journey, um, one is my mother is the fiercest and, and, and first advocate that I ever met. I watched her fight so that I could have access to the spaces that were reserved for privileged white people. I grew up in Inglewood, California, but I took a bus ride an hour each way, no less than 45 minutes from the time that I was in elementary school to the time that I graduated from Pacific Palisades High School. Um, the, the commute was an hour. Um, and my mom had to fight for me to have access to those spaces. When I was in middle school, my peers were taking AP classes at the high school to get ready to be competitive. And I'm like, well, if they doing that, we run in the same race. I need to do that too. And the administration at the high school where I ended up graduating said no. They were worried about the liability. So my mother said, uh, okay, explain that to me, my son, and this lawyer. Uh, oh. And I was enrolled in those classes probably <laughs> thereafter. Uh, and so I named that because before I was introduced to the term advocate, I watched my mother do that work. Did and it. I watched her find people. Like she, she hit up one of my favorite mentors to this day, Dr. Elizabeth Butler, who was a math teacher at my school. I got skipped two levels of math, which you should never do. Uh, in part because people were making policy decisions without thinking about the implications of them in the lives of students. Um, and so my mother reached out to a math teacher to ask her to be my math tutor to ensure that I wouldn't fall through the cracks. Um, and so that all allowed me to do what white people and white supremacy tells us chosen Blacks to do, which is to get out of the hood, to leave the spaces that conspire for our success. I moved clear across the country and went to Columbia University, where I two things happened. One, I found a home at Iris, referencing previous conversations you had with our sister Monique and so many other brilliant people who understand what it means to have linked fate um, and to use our power and our privilege for good. Uh, and I read books that I, as a student, uh, would have to put into praxis, right? To, to have to apply in real time to try and get closer to freedom. Uh, the other thing that happened is I watched the convergence of ignorance and privilege. Throughout my entire tenure as a student at Columbia, I took a semester off to do a domestic exchange at Howard University, where I wrote for The Hilltop. I became the staff writer of the year and did lots of other wacky things. Flex, flex, uh, flex. Boom. Beer, beer, beer. Uh, we shopping all spaces. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the point here is that I watched white people show their asses. Um, so my senior year, where I had committed to taking uh, all of what people said was, was, was good about me in the context of being a student, uh, the skills that I had at honed over time, I, you know, I, somebody said to me my freshman year, um, you should consider a career in research. I had never thought about it. Didn't really understand how people became professors. Like, I just thought they showed up in that space. <laughs> I had uh, Dr. Farrah Jasmine Griffin, uh, who was a rock at the Institute for Research in African-American Studies. Shout out to yeah. her. Was my English professor my freshman year who was like, you should consider this Mellon Research undergraduate fellowship program. And the core of it was that when I understood that I could be paid to pose a question mm. and then find the answer to it. I was like, this is a coldest hustle <laughs> next to selling drugs and I'm too cute to go to jail, so sign me up. 
Um, and that was the plan. I thought to do a JD PhD, right? I'm also uh, clean and articulate as the, the, the whites would say to us when yes. they think they're being nice. Yeah. Um, and so I also thought about law, but my senior year, um, Greta Gratz and Bollinger was tried. This was the, 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 the previous iteration of the now affirmative action cases before the Supreme Court. This yep. is when Lee Bollinger was president of University of Michigan. He became the president of Columbia University my junior year. Um, but but during this course of this case being tried, um, I watched my classmates at an institution that did not have affirmative action policies. We are private institutions. Yeah. We are institutions singularly. Uh, we have been um, since its founding, but they were challenging our right to take up space in an institution that we literally built for free. Um, and so mm. the short of it is that after my senior year, I had to give up on this dream of going to law school because I realized in practice, mm. it's not a radical vehicle for change, but it's much more about preserving precedent. Mm-hmm. I found myself teaching elementary school, kindergarten, uh, to be specific in part because the university chaplain, Joanne L. Davis, shout out to her, uh, was supporting me as I had founded an organization called Columbia University Conserved Students of Color to respond to the convergence of ignorance and privilege. And her office was located in the school building where I, where I would end up teaching. The, the footnote here is that I've always worked with kids. I volunteered at um, the Double Discovery Center uh, at a, um, a summer camp to teach kids business skills in Grass Valley, California. Um, but I had never had somebody tell me that mm. it was valuable for me to use my time, talent, and treasures to teach. In fact, mm. when I said I was going to graduate from Columbia University near the top of my class and teach, people thought I was crazy. My boys had an intervention, invited me to a restaurant, started talking about Lord of the Flies, and if you want to build a school, I run a school, we'll build it for you. But like, people could not understand what the hell I was doing. Why? Why were they so adverse? One, we tell people, we tell black boys, we tell black people, black boys, girls, non-binary folk to go to schools like Columbia to take over corporations and countries, not to be educators. We don't value the work that educators do until we're forced to, e.g. this global pandemic. And we move right right through that. Right. Right. Uh, One, two, um, there's not enough attention to how public education systems function in this country in particular the division between a private school system and a public school system, right. seldom between the two shall meet prior to one going to a post-secondary institution. And I, as a Black boy, had never, and all of the things that somebody had tried to um, uh, invite me to consider, had somebody say, you can or should be a teacher. Now, what I will say is that I had one Black male teacher in my K-12 through experience, and it was a Black man named Mr. Shaw. And this man was the invitation without it being articulated, right? I used to get in trouble for being loquacious when teachers thought I didn't know what that meant. Um, <laughs> I used to get all A's, but I get like unsatisfactory because yes. I read yes. my mouth. You, you know how this goes, right? But Mr. Shaw was the teacher when I was at Crozier Middle School in Inglewood, California, who called my mom and said, hey, he's got a lot of questions. I'm going to sit with him and explore them. I'll make sure he gets home safely. He was the one when... Me showing up as a nerd, invited people wanting to try me, was the one to intervene and be like, no, not, no, not this one. Um, right. And so I say that to acknowledge that while I had not received an explicit invitation, that, that he did show up in my consciousness. And I spent a lot of time as an adult trying to find him to say thank you. Did you find him? 
I did. I did. He was a TFA teacher. I found it. He was one of the earliest cohorts of Teach for America teachers. Um, and he's still a teacher. He teaches uh, at a Cal State uh, system in, within the Cal- California State University system now. So shout out to, to Greg Shaw, Dr. Greg Shaw. What was something um, surprising, whether positive or negative, about teaching that you didn't know until you were actually in the profession? I um, talk often. <laughs> yeah, I could do both. I talk I'll, I'll t- asset-based because we typically do these things in the reverse. Um, I tell people often about how thoughtful and sophisticated the conversations that my kindergarten students had were. <laughs> we forget what it's like to be their age and simply trying to make sense of the world that we've been invited into that we didn't ask to come into. And I miss, I tell you often, I miss sitting on the rug in my kindergarten classroom, just listening to them have conversations. <laughs> I, one thing I'll share quickly, there was a Pope that passed away while I was teaching. Um, and I remember we were sort of sharing, talking about what happened over the weekend. And one of my students, Eve, uh, came in and shared that, you know, her family had been watching these services. And, and mind you, Eve was a student who my colleagues thought was uh, deaf and mute because she would not talk to them. What I knew that they didn't know because they didn't spend time doing a home visit or engaging her beyond what they saw and expected of her is that she heard three languages at home. And she actually was actively choosing to ignore what y'all were talking about because she didn't value y'all. So all this is saying that Eve in kindergarten is talking about, you know, the Pope and everything that happened. Um, And I witnessed my babies then have a conversation about death where James ended up saying, you know, well, I don't believe that when you die, you go to heaven and you got Chris on the other side saying, you know, it's cool that you believe that. But I think that when you die, you become an angel. And the conversations were respectful. I was about to say respectful. They were boundless. They weren't trying to hurt nobody's feelings. It wasn't no politics or performance. Uh, And so I miss and tell people often about how early that starts. Uh, I worked for Tom Harkin, Senator Tom Harkin. He used to represent Iowa. And he would always say, Learning begins at birth and the preparation for learning starts well before birth. And we often forget that in utero, babies are listening to language. And that's one of the reasons why doctors talk about the importance of reading and them hearing the voices of the people who Mm. are caring for them. Um, And so that is paramount. Um, The thing that was most challenging is how the expectations that adults have, most often white women in that context, more than 95% of the teaching workforce K-12 is comprised of white women. Less than 2% of the workforce looks like me. And 90% of that 2% is is not at the elementary school level, right? Like I was the only black male classroom teacher in my entire elementary school building. And so the thing that was most difficult was watching white women's, to be specific, to name a thing, a thing, beloved in the spirit of Ianla, was watching white women's expectations of black boys be Mm. drawn on their bodies without regard for how those black boys were taking up space. I ended up writing my, I wrote my dissertation. uh, It was titled Shadow Boxing because I was really clear that often my colleagues weren't seeing the black boys who literally stood in front of them, who took up space in their classrooms. They were grappling with these ideas they had about what black boys were supposed to be doing in the world. And there was not a single thing that the black boy in front of them could have done or said that was going to challenge that. And so one of the things that came up in my dissertation, there were five black boys in the um, sixth grade when I did this study. They started when the school opened and sort of matriculated onward. And two things perplexed me throughout this entire process. One, there were two teachers 
who, in spite of being with those boys for more than three years, could not tell two of them apart. Stop. We're talking about an independent school on 110th Street and Broadway. It used to be above uh, D'Agostino's for folks who are trying to get the the reference (laughs) two blocks away from Tom's. Like, you could walk up the street to 125th Street, the the centerpiece of Harlem, and and, and trip over any Black boy. But, like, in this building, there were six of them. There were six of them. And, and they could not, like, tripped over themselves trying to, to, to tell them apart. The other thing that vexed me was watching how class showed up in this space in ways that were often problematic. And so the running expectation is that Black boys come from major metropolitan areas where they don't know their father. Data says that that's not true. Shout out to Ron Mincy at Columbia University. Even when the dad's not in the home, Black men are more often yes. involved than, than, than what the myth would say. Um, they assume that they're coming from low-income communities. That is true for some of us, not all of us. And so for Black boys who had families that were high net worth, who would anticipate the unit that would be talked about in global studies and then take their kids to go visit it, the okay. teachers then resented it. What? And so, uh, yeah. This goes, you, this is um, t- this is a counterpoint to um, a part of the conversation that you um, had with Monique and remind me of the other sisters. Sidra. Name? Sidra. That's exactly right. Shout out to both of them. And I hope that if people listen to this episode, Dana, the previous one, they go back, actually go back to Valencia case and then work your way through. But one of the things that they talked about was the adultification of black girls. Right. And, and, and you all discuss how as black women, you are penalized for displaying the kinds of professional traits that serve white men in their mediocrity exceptionally well. To dig deeper and to push on a point that is in Monique Morris's book, Push Out, it vexed me that when I worked in the White House, leading the White House Initiative on Educational Excellence for African Americans, a position I was point, appointed to by Barack Hussein Obama, President Barack Hussein Obama, yeah. put the respect <laughs> on his name. When I was leading that, people became comfortable in part because of the work around my brother's keeper, um, the, the, which was important. The footnote here is that intersectionality should have been applied as a lens of what it helped with a lot of the work that Monique and Sidra are doing now and work around intersectionality more generally. But people became comfortable saying and knowing that for every one white boy who was suspended or expelled, kindergarten through 12th grade, the rate was three times higher for Black boys. I was always perplexed that seldom when I shared that or affirmed that people never really asked, what about Black girls? And the assumption at the time, because the data at the post-secondary level was like, Black women are outstripping Black men, y'all are going to college and and succeeding at higher rates, y'all are rightfully taking up the space in corporate settings that you earned and often weren't getting recognized or paid for. But the rate for Black girls was six times higher. For every one white girl suspended or expelled, there was six times that amount for Black girls. Insane. Right? So all of this to say that, like, what I saw take place in a school that kids often didn't have a choice about showing up in because they're compelled to go to school by law was witnessing the consequences of the expectations that adults have based on the social constructs, race, racism, ability, sexual identity, gender orientation or expression and the like um, impact them in really consequential ways. When you look at the landscape right now of education in this country, what's the first word that comes to your mind? It's not a word. It's a phrase that Brian Stevenson helped, helped a lot of people to appreciate, which is that systems work as they're designed to. 
public education in, in this country in particular works as it was designed to post- What was it designed to? Post-industrialism, public education was designed to sort and select students into um, predetermined job classifications on the back end, right? So prior to- indu- the industri- I think, I feel like I've known that as like a- theory but like like that was a practical like planned out yes it was a, so um i was looking for it earlier uh, but um uh, bell hooks uh writes in a book called teaching critical theory about how most people forget the name john dewey um john dewey is is responsible for public education in our country and how it's designed and he looked to what was going on in Europe for a lot of it. So two things that are important. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, schooling was reserved for the rich. Yes. Everybody else needed to work, right? right. After the Industrial Revolution, where you had factories popping up and, and literally um, uh, entire industries changing, you needed people who could do those jobs. Yeah. So public schools were created to prepare people to do those jobs. And in its crudest forms, schools were designed to sort people into being managers or workers or people who are going to service the workers. And that or prisoners. St- people who are going to service the workers. Oh, labor force. Okay. Yeah. yeah. People, go- whether we want to call them prisoners or frontline workers or whatever is people who service the workers who are often invisible until they're not e.g. the global pandemic or e.g. white supremacy right right? like that system still exists to this day small doses with amanda seals is sponsored by better help you know there's been times in my life where things were definitely not on the up and up and I just kind of felt like I had utilized all of my internal resources at hand to get me out of the doldrum. And that was when I went to therapy. And I am really happy to see that therapy has become far less stigmatized and far more realized to a lot of people as an asset and as a tool to getting your mental health back on track. And now you can do that with better help. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service. BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash doses. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash doses. And you know, it's not anything weird or kooky to have trouble navigating life's challenges. So when we see, and I, I, I wanted you, I couldn't wait for you to come on so you could unpack this for a lot of us because I feel like a lot of folks don't necessarily understand the impact of charter schools yeah. and how the Betsy DeVoses of the world who are using language like we want to put school back into the state's hands. We want to put schools back into the parents' hands. I right. wanted you to just decrypt and decode that for folks because it's coded language um, that is one on its surface feels empowering. 
right? Like ideally, you know, folks hear that and say, oh, you know, you're, you're, they care about the parents and they care about the states. Um, but I feel like you and I know, and you can say it way better than I can, that that is actually not, even if it's accurate. empowering, it's only impact. Right. It's not accurate because it's only empowering for a certain group. So I would love if you could just kind of decode that for folks. Yeah, happily. Uh, so let's separate uh, at least two things in this moment. One is being uh, a conversation around charter schools, and then the second is around parent rights. Okay. Uh, so charter schools emerged um, <laughs> emerged as a trade-off where public schools, so let me be clear, charter schools are public schools. They're public okay. schools that have a charter. A charter is simply an application that one files before Board of Education that says, I will do these things. And the trade-off was, I'll do these things and get some flexibilities with increased accountability and outcomes. So this is important because the, the trade-off, okay. a, a lot of people forgot about, right? And, and just focus <laughs> on the flexibilities, right? Got but it's you. supposed to be, you get flexibility. So charters have the ability to hire and fire faculty in ways that are different than a traditional public school, non-charter right. school. They have the ability to augment their calendar. They have the ability to raise funds. They have the ability to do things that the research and praxis showed limited the ability for traditional public schools to be effective, in particular for certain members of our community. Um, 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 Low-income, uh, poor, Black, Brown, Latinx, Native, Indigenous, uh, people concentrated. This, there's another book uh, by Massey and Denton called American Apartheid. Uh, but this is about how we're forced into neighborhoods. Also, Marcus Hunter, another Columbia um, grad, wrote this book that I'm looking at now. Um, um, oh shit. Black City Makers is the name of it. He looks at Du Bois's research. But all of this to say that like cities are formed in ways that help to facilitate uh, these systems. And charters were supposed to get these flexibilities and they were supposed to show better outcomes at lower cost. Okay. The challenge with charters is two things at least. One is most focused on getting all the flexibilities without better outcomes at increased cost. So then you saw people, and this is why people reference like gaming the system, kids mm. getting pushed out of schools if they otherwise might threaten their ability to achieve at the levels at which they say they're going to achieve. And then in a lot of cities, you don't have charter boards who are actively um, holding charter authorizers accountable, right? So you have schools that people know are just doing a disservice to communities and people hold on to them for whatever reason. Um, and it's not until there's someone who comes in and says, hey, we're going to change it, that there's often an outcry. Um, so the point I want people to walk away from is as follows. One, charter schools are public schools. I, it's like nails on a chalkboard when people still talk about them not appreciating that. Um, okay. The second thing is that um, uh, charter schools only work when there's a focus on the flexibilities and increased outcomes or accountability. Right. The third thing, to your point about Bessie DeVos, is that, and then I'll move to parents' rights in this regard, is that there have been people... Uh, people who uh, benefit from white supremacy, people who uphold yes. white supremacy, and people who have worked to destroy democracy and have used charter schools as the place to do it. Before Betsy DeVos was appointed by he who shall not be named to lead the Department of Education, which she was unqualified for, if only for the reason that she never went to a public school, didn't have kids that went to a public school, never probably stepped foot on a public school. But what she had done is invest billions of her own dollars, U.S. dollars and dinero into destroying charter schools, into weakening them, into... Um, um, uh, but, uh, but to what end? 
to the end of taking the money that charter schools would otherwise receive and then having her friends get those accounts to, to use to, to, for to operate those charter schools, to operate businesses that are supposed to support those charter schools. So it's to, just fraud. To, um, fraud to the extent that, that educational malpractice should be a thing that is tried in the court of Ooh. law, but, but it's not, especially not under this current Supreme yeah, court yeah, yeah. or the courts that have been stacked by um, the Republican right over the last three decades. But yes, to the extent that um, in the medical complex, we would never tolerate a hospital or a group of medical providers continuing to provide services to a community of people and those people die. Right. We wouldn't, we wouldn't tolerate it, but it right. continues to happen in so many communities throughout our country, not just major metropolitan areas where people assume all black and brown mm -hmm. and Latinx or poor people are, but in small rural and isolated communities where you often then don't have the additional community-based support yeah. that often might supplement what might not be happening in traditional uh, public schools, charter or otherwise in major metropolitan areas. Um, the parents' rights piece, just really quickly, um, we should all be clear that parents' rights is a dog whistle that Republicans send out close to elections so that people who are single-issue voters will turn out. Um, the conversation about parents' rights um, is flummoxing to me, if only for the reason that a lot of the things that states like Florida and Texas and others that pass aggressive anti-Black, um, anti-LGBTQ, um, anti-human bills um, and under the guise of parents' rights, most of what they said they wanted are already enshrined in amendments that have been codified by the Supreme Court. Mm. A lot of the rights that they are still advocating so like, for... Um, give me an ability, example. Uh, uh, one, the ability to, um, to introduce your children to concepts around sexual identity, gender orientation, or expression. There's nothing that precludes people from doing that in their homes. There's also nothing prior to states like Florida introducing don't say gay that compel people to do that in elementary schools. Because that's, you know, that's the thing. I'm just like, no, I don't have an elementary, I don't have children. I don't have anyone, uh, you know, in an elementary school setting. But I'm just like, is that a conversation that is happening in typical elementary schools in 2022 in, in such a way that it feels that, in such a way that there would be a need to create some type of legislation around it being silenced? Uh, uh, so, uh, yes and no. Two things can be true at the same time. So, uh, one, let me back up and say, um, to the extent that this was an issue prior to the, the introduction of, there were like more than 200 pieces of this kind of legislation I'm talking about, parents had the ability to opt out or had their children okay. not participate in a curriculum or program or an activity as an example. Okay. Right? Um, that being true, yes, we should all celebrate my word, not everybody else's word, that there has been so much progress that there are more examples of people inviting in or otherwise mm -hmm. sharing their diverse sexual identity, gender orientation, expressions and experiences with people. Two. Can I just say for a second that... Inviting in, I don't know if that's your term or someone it else's. Is. Okay. Inviting in is a, um, a it, would it be euphemism or idiom? What's the word? A phrase. A phrase. Uh, a, a phrase. A, a beseechment. Yeah. A beseechment coined by Dr. David Johns that reimagines the phrase coming out of the closet 
inviting in versus coming out. And I had to read something you had posted like four times to be like, oh, that's what he said. You got it. And I was like, oh, I like, okay, I get it. I get, and I was yeah. like, you know what? That is so much more attuned with what really is taking place in that moment versus this idea that you are hidden and need to be revealed. It's actually, no, this is my space and I'm inviting you into my reality of my identity and not everybody um, deserves even that access. That's right. And while we're in this footnote, then we'll come back to opting out in schools. Um, One, it's about power because I don't owe you anything. Right to where you were. Nope. Um, two, uh, we often think about this when we're, when we're thinking about sexual identity. But society has something that they tell each of us we should feel shame around. Right. So we all have something that we can invite other people into if they demonstrate competence and compassion, so we can grow deeper together as humans. Um, and then the last thing is just I, I hate the way that people suggest that coming out as a singular experience. One closets are built by straight people, and it affirms a heterosexual agenda. Uh, but often we navigate every single day whether or not we invite somebody in, uh, and that gets diminished when people celebrate coming out in the way that they traditionally do. So to go back to your question, yes, there has been an increase in conversations about LGBTQIA plus issues, if only for the reason that they need to. Prior to this year, it is the fact that um, the Education and Secondary Education Act of America treats children who are assumed to be LGBTQIA+, or who identifies LGBTQIA+, different than their peers. Kids right now in public schools throughout the country don't have the same protections. If they identify or assume to be queer, which is most often the case, or if they are. The second thing is that there were some 18 states throughout this country that had what we call no promo homo laws. Where I, as a teacher, yep, no promo homo laws. This is before this don't say gay stuff. So I, as a teacher in Florida, could have been fired for having a picture of my partner on my desk because the assumption would have been that that picture or my affirmation of my identity, me inviting people in would have been teaching people that they should be gay. And here's what I think about as a critical thinker. That shit just don't work that way. That math ain't math. And if it did, that would not be queer people. The, literally nothing in this society has invited queer people into a space that says, it's really easy to do this. Come on over. We are so supportive of this. There's nothing that has done that. And yet, and still. Here we are. Right. And and, 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 and so the, the confluence of... Um, Isn't it crazy yes. when you apply logic, how so many things are undermined? Look, Just... critical thinking, Bell Hooks tells, <laughs> tells us about critical thinking. But because there is an increase in diversity, right? Like, the diversity that exists in our country, I've always celebrated as beautiful in part because of my intersectional identities. But that increase rubs right up against white supremacy, especially yeah. with regard to white folks and the folks who enable them being able to trade their whiteness, the value that it, that it holds in our country, and for political votes or for capital. And so what we're seeing in schools is, or rather, anxieties around these issues, which are complex and weighty. And often should be um, contemplated and decided upon between families and the medical providers and experts who know and love them. Not by politicians who don't know anything about development, let alone child development, or LGBTQIA plus identities. I think I answered both questions. <laughs> I never know when you're going to stop talking, so I'm never ready. <laughs> It'll just end. And I'm like, oh, I, I, I need, I, what's the thing I'm going to say? Double Dutch. <laughs> 
for parents who are listening mm-hmm. and let's just go like to your specific area of study that you just focused on in your dissertation for parents who are listening and have children that um, either have self-identified or they feel uh, are giving LGBTQIA plus uh, energy in a way that they would be treated dis, um, that they would be treated, discriminated against in their school. How can they create, what's the, what are, what are some methods that they can do to try and create safe spaces for their kids in systems that are still actively working to undermine their children's existence? Now, see, what you're listening to right now is a thinker, okay? That silence is a thinker thinking. It's me writing it down so I can connect these It is a thinker thinking because, baby, when you're asking people who actually read and write questions, they will absolutely think about it before they give an answer. People ask me all the time. They're like, oh, it's really like, not ask, but they'll say like, oh, I love seeing you like think before you answer. Yes! (laughs) I wish that everybody did it. (laughs) Right. Even in ways that are not observable. Uh, and, and my challenge is that I also then think about the books or articles that I can reference and then don't want to go too deep, um, such as the I've life had to of, learn, a, of a so PhD. I, I've learned in interviews, I know how to, I know how to talk at the, I know how to talk enough to give me time to be thinking when yeah. someone asks me a question. So if someone yeah. asks me a question, ask me a question, I can say, well, you know, to answer your question, and then I will say right. the question right, back. Right. I'm happy you asked that. <laughs> So when people ask me for tips, when people ask me for tips, I'm like, say it back to them. Take a breath. Say it back to them. Yes. And as someone who benefits from the way my ADHD is set up and my ability to like process a lot of rapid, rapid fire information, I also want to celebrate silence. Um, It is the case that often because of how smartness is performed by white people on white spaces that there's this expectation that you have to be like Serena Williams whenever it comes to responding. (laughs) Um, and everybody ain't Serena. So I want folks to also just pause and take a beat. Um, so I heard you ask what should parents who have children who are queer with a capital Q, um, I'll, I'll define that in a second, but what should they do? Um, and so I use queer because I want folks to be clear that the, the root of the word queer means anything that is not dominant or pejorative. Black people are queer in the United States. Women are queer in a space where patriarchy is the default. Uh, queer has become a, a synonym for sexual minorities, um, but the term in its purest form means that which is not dominated or in positions of power. Okay. And I say that because, as I referenced earlier, um, it is often the case that children experience problems that adults create well before they themselves identify as members of the communities that they are. Yes. Uh, stigmatized um, by being associated with. There was a a poll um, that came out, this was well over a decade ago, that said that more than 90% of high school students, 70% rather, high school students were identifying as anything other than strictly heterosexual. And the footnote there is that not all of them were having sex, but they were clear to the point Monique made that like language works in ways that put us in binaries and boxes and this doesn't help any of us get free. It actually supports 
white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism in a way that benefits old white men who come yeah. from conservative cultures and values, right? Um, and so for folks who have children who are queer and for folks who don't, I want everybody mm. to be clear that the boxes and binaries don't benefit any of us. Mm-hmm. The, the, the conversations that we typically have about cisgendered, heterosexual Black men and their toxicity, e.g. Kanye, yay, whatever he's calling himself, e.g. Tory Lanez, e.g. I could go down the list. Those toxic traits are rooted in the same machinations of what Black masculinity should be that makes it difficult for Black boys who are femme-identified, who are feminine, or who are otherwise sassy. I say that to say, and I'm sitting in this place because I hope people hear my heart when I say that I fundamentally believe that the goal, the, 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 the way we pay back our ancestors who sacrificed for us to be here and enjoy the privileges that we've inherited mm-hmm. is that our babies should be free and they mm-hmm. should have the ability to do things and use language and pursue passions and have relationships that don't make sense to us. Mm. They simply should not make sense to us. Mm. And we should be okay with that. Not not only should we be okay with it, we should be celebrating and supporting it. Right. That that that, that to me is the manifestation yeah. of yeah. the sacrifices. If not, then what the fuck are we doing this for? So let me tell you right now, there are people in the car that are just listening, like, well, you, you know, I Listen. Don't even argue it. Let let it sink in. I hope or we can argue it. I'm happy to do that too. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I hope you read some stuff, right? Because I'm not just talking about my feelings. I'm talking about what I know. Yeah. So when it comes to children, I, I want people to want think about this. Like we do things without thinking about them critically. Like we often don't think about how sexual identity, gender orientation, or expression matter until well after the fact. We introduce children to gender expectations before they are born. These gender reveals are fascinating. I'm like, what? when does this happen? I'd never heard of these until like the, maybe even the pandemic. Like I just didn't, like what? Even the idea of like pink room, blue, blue room. room. So <laughs> let's just start there with this. This goes back to the flattening. This is why like ladies is problematic and how language like it structures things literally and figuratively, right? But like that we would, before a child is born, doctors guess. Doctors make educated guesses. Gender is assigned at birth by doctors who guess. The, the, the step hereafter is if you agree with the guess that the doctor made, you're cisgender. If you don't, you're transgender. That's all it is, ladies and gentlemen. These terms are new and they make me feel, feel some kind of way. But they, they've been working an application for a long time, and that's simply all that it means. So acknowledging- well, I think a lot of people also just don't understand that there is two tiers. There's your sexuality. Like, I mean, not sexuality. There's your sex, right? So you are physically born with, you know, male organs, female organs. And by the way, sometimes that also is not- That's exactly right. Like That's, that's exactly right, which we don't talk about either, right? Right. Yep, keep going. So- yep. You know, there's a humanity is ex- exists on a spectrum. Right. Humanity exists on a spectrum. So it's the binary is literally a construct. It's not real. You can only say that there's a binary if there's never been anything in between. There's that, but and, and this is when I'm like, most people don't even do the work to think on the level that you're thinking at, Amanda. They simply are feeling some kind of way 
by having to acknowledge the privilege of existing in ways that these terms have never needed to mean anything to you. If you've been cisgendered and now everybody's saying like you're cisgender, you're like, wait a minute, no, I'm just me. Like, yes, and the term and... that like people use in certain spaces is cisgender. Why, why does that better question? What about what I held on to in terms of how I thought about myself is now so threatened by right. this new information? That's the one or, right there. Or an appreciation that people have always existed in this way. I'm sitting in this space to say that I would like to invite parents to be critical yeah. about how this stuff happens when we're not even thinking about it. E.g., these gender reveal parties. E.g., when we celebrate Valentine's Day and teach girls expectations about how girls are supposed to exist in relationship to boys. I want us to be critical when we think about our language. Y'all talked about you, Monique and Sidra, but you all were talking about ladies and how ladies is used by men in particular to suggest the kind of way that ladies are supposed to act and expectations yes. around decorum. People often don't think critically about the reality that there is one way to legally to refer to a grown boy. He's a mister. There are at least three mm -hmm. ways to refer to a grown girl. She's a miss, M-I-S-S. -S. She's a miss, yep. M-S, or she's a miss, M-R-S. And each and of those terms- And all of those are related to a man! Not only are they related to a, a man husband. in a presumably a cisgender husband. heterosexual relationship recognized by the state, yes. they also come with separate privileges socially, yes. politically, economically. Can you bring those it? I, people, I know a lot of matter. people don't know this. I know a lot of people don't know this. I remember learning this in second grade. I remember learning this in second grade and I actually ended up leaving that class because there wasn't a love learning going on. There was too much play. And I told my mom, I just can't keep, I just can't keep putting shaving cream on a desk when I go to school. I need a higher level of education. Right, and so she, she got me in another class. But I remember learning this in that class and I remember him breaking down. Miss means that you haven't been married. Right. Mrs. means that you are married. Ms. is that you were married. Right. And I was like, right. Huh. Why right. do we need? I remember being seven saying, right. why do we need all of that? And then the right. next class that I was put in was a class taught by the Ms. Sean LaBowman, mm. who informed us as second graders that she would be Ms. Don't say Mrs. and don't right. say Miss. She was I like, hit that something. Z, hit that Z very hard. Right. And I was like, well, have you been married? <laughs> and she was like, no. I choose to go by this right. acknowledgement of myself because that is my choice and it shouldn't be determined by whether or not I have been married to a man or whatever. It shouldn't be determined it's... by the state. Right. So this is the core of what um, I want is the answer to your question about what I hope uh, parents will consider. And I want to be clear. Uh, okay. Uh, a parent is a child's first and most important educator. So if you hear me say nothing else, hear me say thank you for doing yeah. God's work in that regard. Um, but I want you to teach your babies to think critically. Um, I completed my dissertation about the experiences of Black, trans, queer, non-binary, middle and high school students, public high school students in this country and the thread that runs through all of the data collection is the thing that makes them most safe is the ability to think critically. I referenced earlier this mm. book, Teaching Critical Thinking by Bell Hooks, uh, and she reminds us uh, teaching is an action for all aspiring intellectuals. Thoughts are the laboratory where one goes to pose questions and to find answers and the place where visions of theory and praxis come together. The heartbeat of critical thinking is the longing to know 
to understand how life works. Children are organically predisposed to be critical thinkers. Across the boundaries of race, class, gender, and circumstance, children come into the world of wonder and language consumed with the desire for knowledge. Sometimes they are so eager for knowledge that they become relentless interrogators, demanding to know the who, what, where, when, and why of life, searching for answers. They learn almost instinctively how to think. Here's what I'm trying to say about this. Mm. Often when it comes to questions about things that scare us, the immediate response is to shut it down. Think about a child being in a grocery store and seeing a non-gender conforming person or a non-binary person or somebody in drag or somebody who has a physical disability. A child will often ask, why? Why is that person different than what I've been exposed to or what I've been taught is how we all show up in the world? And the response from most adults is to shut it down. Shh, don't ask. I'll tell you later. Mm. Right? Yeah, yeah. The exact opposite should be true. We should be supporting. This goes back to the first question you asked about what I've missed most about being a kid. We should be celebrating and supporting our young people and their ability to think critically about the world around them. So when they encounter things that are different, because if we do this right, they will. They live in a global world, right? Like yeah. When they encounter things that are different, they're not scared about difference. Diversity doesn't have to mean different or deficit. We made it that way because public schools are designed to take the ability to think critically away, uh, especially from children who are most sensitive about the environment and most able to say, this shit ain't set up for me to succeed. So how do you then supplement that at home? I think three things. One is uh, we had a, a part of this conversation, but one is modeling um, critical thinking and a part of being able to think critically is to be healthy mentally. So I celebrate that there are more Black folk in particular who, in addition to going to the doctor annually, uh, have a therapist. But are you yeah. doing your work with your therapist to heal mm. the things that we need to heal from? Mm. Um, um, Which, by the way, even as you were talking about this idea of not shutting things down when they're uncomfortable, mm -hmm. that extends even to that conversation. Because Absolutely. I think so many of us in our mental health journey and our quest, we shut things down that are uncomfortable, which ends up being an impediment to us actually existing in health. Absolutely. And Dr. Jordan Gruen, uh, post-traumatic slave syndrome, her theory, I, I question whether we're post anything, but what she talks about... Uh, us existing in ways that physiologically feel like sleep deprivation. We're often walking around like we have not been able to sleep because of the trauma associated with being Black or poor or woman-identified or femme or trans. When you are existing in that way physiologically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, sometimes financially, the last thing you want to do is sit in a space of discomfort. Right. Not when you it's feel true. like it's, it's voluntary. Yeah. Right? Um, and so... Mm. Modeling is, is incredibly important with regard to wellness and ability to think critically. The second thing is, if you don't have friends who are incredibly diverse, then absolutely shame on you. Some of this is simply about exposure. Yeah. Yeah. We should be on believing that those people, whoever they are, don't exist. Not, 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 not in the year 2022 with Beyonce's good internet. And, and most of us uh, uh, not investing in a five in a savings plan for children so we can have the latest iPhone and access to the internet, right? Like, I, I'm trying to be funny in this moment, but like, <laughs> we have the ability to leverage platforms like YouTube and other things that people are creating. They're smart, funny, and Black that we can use to expose people to ways of being that have always existed, especially those that are pan-Africanist. So my last thing is this. The one thing that, 
I um, uh, understood from my research that was a protective factor for our babies was them being clear about their Blackness and celebrated and supported in it. But that Blackness has to be all-inclusive and intersectional, right? So it's not enough to say you care about Black people if you only care about Black people that look like you or affirm the way that you exist in the world. Simply say you care about yourself and then move the hell out of the way, right? But if you're going to care about all Black people and exist in ways that celebrate loving Black people and culture, shout out to Issa Rudin for everybody Black, then it has to be inclusive and encompassing in ways that account for all of our lived identities and experiences. And so there are all kinds of books that one can access. I do a lot of sharing of books and resources in that regard. There are, in some communities, organizations and associations where people meet to have these conversations to talk about resource, the challenges that in the spaces where Black people are most concentrated and Black queer people live with other Black people, for anybody who is wondering. Um, in most states throughout the country, those, those things are now illegal, much like access to abortion or healthcare with regard to reproductive justice. Um, and so I really hope that that if people are getting lost in this, I don't understand all this queer talk and I feel like the LGBTQ agenda is winning. Um, what I hope people hear is a concern for Black babies who are at the center of all of this and who are impacted most negatively by all this legislation or these attacks, no matter how they are termed. Um, it's really about not allowing people to be themselves in ways that feel good, uh, to use terms that um, actively capture how they feel and show up in the world. I keep going back to, to the episode um, with Monique and Sidra. Um, and ensuring that our babies know they are loved, especially knowing that they're going to go out in a world that is still shaped so powerfully by white supremacy. And there it is. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. David Johns. I mean, it's so nice to have you on. I don't have to talk. I don't have to. <laughs> I mean, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm their witness. And I testify that all that is said is true. Um, you named a couple books. I would love if you could just reiterate uh, the names of some of those books that you listed. Uh, we have a segment called The Script where we definitely uh, try to give people, uh, you know, some supplementary materials. And sometimes that's not available, but you have got supplementary materials. So The Script. Happy to do that. Um, so I referenced a lot and I quoted from Bell Hooks, lowercase b, lowercase h, put some respect on our ancestor's name. It's teaching critical thinking, uh, practical wisdom. In this book, she references John Dewey, um, who has lots of, if anybody's interested in public education, like that part of our conversation, they should pick that up. Um, did reference this by name, but this is a supplemental book to our conversation. It's um, titled African-American Young Girls and Women in Pre-K-12 Schools and Beyond. Um, it's edited by a bunch of brilliant scholars, including my brother, James Moore. Um, and I have a chapter in this book um, with some brilliant, um, brilliant sisters, including Dr. Lauren C. Mims, uh, who worked with me um, in the White House. I also referenced um, Black City Makers, which is a book written by Dr. Marcus Anthony Hunter, another Iris baby. Um, but Black City Makers, How the Philadelphia Negro Changed Urban America. Um, so he really tackles the white lie that it's white people who create communities, right? This idea mm -hmm. that white flight, we're always responding to them. Um, so he right. pulls from Du Bois's data, as do I, um, in terms of his theories, um, to argue that we create space, um, as we all know, we create um, culture as well. I think those are the books I referenced. If others come to mind, I'd be happy to send them to you. 
Thank you so much. Keep doing what you are always doing, which is not just teaching the babies, but you're teaching us all. Um, The big babies. (laughs) The big babies. The ones who are getting in touch with their inner babies. uh, Listen, actually, Amanda, before, so this is funny. Uh, I don't know if you, you intended to go here. But I want I want to say this. Um, uh, it's on my heart. The older I get, at my big age of forty, I now find it funny. Um, and the longer I live my life as a free black man, the more I appreciate two things. One is I know people of all races and ethnicities that engage in queer, intimate, romantic, and sexual relationships who will never identify as queer. Mm. Never. And I, I think about moments when like Oz was huge or yeah. um, I blame my Oprah for part of the problems in our community with regard to her popularizing J.O. King and his myths about the D.L. Negro. But like there are times where we think about it uh, as cultural practices in certain spaces, e.g. prisons, but we actually don't hold space for the fact that people have always shown up in queer ways, even when we didn't have the language or, or, or hold the space always. to talk about it publicly. The second thing is the frequency with which people feel they have to be personally affected by something in order to care. Um, And this one um, is a thing that's been keeping me up at night as you and I recorded this conversation on the eve of the midterm election. Um, So few people, I think, appreciate, and this is something Bill Hooks talks about in this book, that democracy is something that every generation has to defend. Um, I think that's true for um, so many people. And a part of defending democracy is ensuring that, like, each of us have the ability to enjoy the rights, privileges, and freedoms that the most protected among us take for granted. Right. And so this idea that, like, Black men need to have a daughter in order to become a feminist, a Black feminist, (laughs) or you have to know somebody who has a disability in order to understand that, like, most Black people are born with or are made to have a disability because of how white supremacy works— even when most of, many of them are hidden or invisible disabilities, right. that 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 somebody has to declare to you publicly that they are a member of a sexual minority community. Like, I I, I wish for the day when at least Black folk, F O L X, because all my skin folk and my kin folk, very true. Candace Owens. Um, I don't know her. I, I, it, then there's that. Um, she who shall not be named henceforth. Um, I, I, w- I long for the day when we understand that unless and until all of us are free, none of us are free, Fannie Lou Hamer, and you should not have to know someone to appreciate that white supremacists will come for you too. I, I cram to understand how that is not obvious to more. Yeah, especially now. Well, you're right. We are recording this on the eve of the midterm elections. And um, by the time this airs, we will be in the throes of the aftermath of that, which I think for anyone who's been paying attention knows that um, it will not be basic, whatever way it goes. So, you know, stay low, stay firing. And- uh, That is different now, because that's literally and figuratively. So- we got yeah. to, but you know, uh, I follow this Instagram page called TN Holler, the Tennessee Holler, and their motto is yell the truth. Mm. And mm. I really love that because I think so many folks uh, in the last three years have come to see in a very real way that if they are quiet, 
about the injustices that they are witnessing, then to your point, those injustices will end up consuming you as well. And oh, so absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we must yeah. all find our voice in some shape, way or form um, and rally. Yeah. And you have always been a voice. And so I always have space and time on this platform for it. Thank you. I appreciate you. Ditto. Ta-da! <laughs> <laughs> Star Bands Audio, a, podca- <clears throat> a podcast network.